Hello, my name is Mark Reed Bulatovic and I'm here with Callum Kumber. Together we form the duo Basingenda Gedaland and we're currently in the process of writing an album. In this series, Word Lenda, we speak to a guest every week who has some connection to the landscape in their day-to-day -day practice. Today we're thrilled to chat with Judith Lamb, who from beginnings in the Black Forest region of Southwest Germany has always connected to her surroundings through food. Coming from a long line of foragers, her repertoire of berries, nuts, greens, fungi, and more recently seaweeds is truly extensive. She's an active member of various online identification forums and has established herself as a cornerstone of the Edinburgh foraging scene. Always happy to share her knowledge and delicious wild food recipes with the world. Judith also runs Edinburgh Forage and Eat and aims to educate, inspire, and delight through guided foraging walks, courses, and wild food preparation events. Could you tell us how you started foraging and why you've continued throughout your life? Sure, I would be happy to. Um, I started foraging as a child with my parents. Uh, I think in the Black Forest and the Schwarzwald in Germany, it's quite a common thing to forage. So lots of people do for a rather limited repertoire of things, berries and nuts and some mushrooms and some green like the wild garlic about right now uh, and loved it as a kid obviously I'm and being out in the woods fooling around it's perfect um, and as I grew up and moved away it became a way for me to connect to the new land to the to the new country to the new landscapes I was living in so uh, I think it even became more important um, as I grew older it also connects me back to my childhood, connects me back to my family in a way and to the traditions I grew up with. Um, yeah, and it helps with homesickness, I think. It helps with a sense of belonging. As I'm becoming intimately acquainted with the species around me, with the landscapes around me, I really feel I belong to the land and it belongs to me. I take ownership of it that way. And that's really important. How, how does the... Uh different places you've lived, how do they compare in their forests or, you know, are, are the forests always kind of similar in, in that respect? Like they always make you feel the same way? Mm, yeah, being in a forest, I think is always a transcendental experience in a way, but, but they all differ. Every forest is its own. Do you know, in the Lord of the Rings, the, the little poem, I think it's Bilbo, maybe. I can't quite remember, but where it says in every wood, in every spring, there is a different green. And I think it's so true. Like every year is different. Every forest is different. And I lived in quite different places. I mean, Scotland in some ways has similarities and similar species to, to the Schwarzwald. But before that, I lived in Florida and before that in Pennsylvania, where it was completely different, uh, different species and different climates, obviously, and different landscapes. And it's not just the forests. There's also, you know, meadows and hills and riversides and then the shore, which is a really, really good foraging area. I guess in the UK, we, we don't actually have that much forest, forest really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah a lot of our most interesting habitats are like hedgerows and things like that that's I, true I... that's true i'm still drawn to the forest though because of the mycorrhiza you know the the relationships of fungi with tree roots especially beech and pine so i do love being in the forest 
and we do have some around here. It's not, it's not totally barren. Have you found that there's any any relationship with like the old older trees being more rich with the mycorrhizal connections? Absolutely, absolutely. And I deliberately seek out uh, old growth beech, for example, because they're so good uh, for mycorrhiza. Yeah. So for for me and Callum foraging has really started to become a part of our lives at the beginning of the lockdown and general information online has been so important for learning about species is this the best way to learn yeah it's it's hard for me to say i think it's good for a start to have somebody show you in real life like you know you were saying it happened with you and your girlfriend i think if you have a person in person show you a species and show you foraging because you involve the senses so much in foraging. It's not learning from a book is a bit one dimensional. You're seeing the things you're taking in the information, but you can't smell it. You can't feel it. You don't feel the environment you're in. So it's a bit flat. And I think that makes it a bit more difficult when you are in a place. I can go to a place now in off season and think, Ooh, this feels Chanterelle. You know, the, there's sort of there's sort of a feel to a place and I think you're probably just taking in clues sort of subconscious clues this is the right kind of trees this is the kind right kind of uh, nearness to moisture and stuff like that maybe maybe similar species that I associate with finding them but um, I think this kind of information is hard to get through books or even through the Facebook groups having said that I love the Facebook groups for expanding knowledge. Once you're in there, once you're into foraging, it's so helpful to get the confidence and the backup from a Facebook group. And after a while, you know who you can trust, you know who will give you good information. Even if you have 10 people before say the wrong thing, you know, you can, I mean, take it with a grain of salt. I think I wouldn't... Um, especially as a beginning forager, I wouldn't uh, be too confident about the identifications you get. But if you're already quite sure this is what you have, and then getting a second opinion and a third opinion just to give you the confidence to confirm yourself. And also, if you're totally clueless, to just give you a direction to research in. I think it's helpful. And it's a bit of community too, isn't it? Local local foraging groups. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I guess we, we talked about this um, the other day about how, you know, when you find something, you're always a bit biased. <laughs> if, if you find that there's a species similar that, that yeah. is edible and like delicious, you know, you're like, oh, it's this or, or really rare or whatever. Like we, we definitely put our... Um, yeah we, we really hope to find something yes. good you know and it's yeah. helpful then to have an outside opinion kind of dampening your enthusiasm down a bit yeah I, I definitely um agree with that a lot last year I found some kind of candle stuff fungi and I didn't know what it was at the time but I thought it was this like super rare fungi that someone had found in the Scottish Highlands only once before and then I posted it on one of these Facebook pages and it's like it's just candle stuff <laughs> but, <okay. laughs> but for a bit you were excited weren't you yeah oh I was yeah <laughs> yeah so I, I wanted to ask um, does the physicality of foraging make us more emotionally attached to the things we're collecting 
Um, and are there other ways of developing this relationship between humans and other species? Oh, I absolutely think so. I think foraging connects deeply um, with the species and with the landscape and with the season. First of all, because you have to be so mindful, you're paying attention to every little detail and it really um, makes you aware of the wonder surrounding you. So I think just from that, it's really joy giving and, and emotionally connective, but you're also investing a lot of time in this and a lot of study and then a lot of time walking. So I think it makes you value your food or, you know, even if you're foraging to die or, or to do art with or whatever, it really makes you value what you're finding differently because of the time and effort and, and love you're investing in it. And yeah, I think this can happen in different ways too. To me, foraging really is it because afterwards, after I forage, I consume the things I forage. So I'm really internalizing in a really, really physical way what I've gathered. Um, but I can submerge myself into nature in different ways. So like when I go wild swimming, I think that's a really nice way of, again, physically sinking into the landscape. Um, but I think through art, for example, as well, if you're, if you're picking a species to, or if you're outside and drawing something and studying it closely, every little detail, I think that creates the same sort of connection and maybe just studying in a more intellectual way as well, looking at things close up under the microscope, maybe reading every scientific paper you can find about it. I think that also anytime I think you connect with something intimately, investing time, investing love, investing interest and enthusiasm, you'll get that connection. Mm. I definitely agree about wild swimming, something that I started last year um, in, the, in my local estuary. And it's such a different experience swimming in um, an ecosystem than it is in a swimming pool. I always love it when there are little crabs floating on the surface. I almost kind of bump into them while I'm swimming. I've seen some <laughs> photos you posted this winter of your wild swimming and I was, I, I, I mean, I couldn't believe it. It was like in completely frozen reservoirs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're just like swimming Up around. in the Pentlands. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's crazy. So you've continued over the winter. I, oh, yeah. I, a, I, I stopped. I was a wimp, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the ocean, it doesn't matter so much because the temperature difference in <laughs> Edinburgh in particular, it isn't that big, you know, you have 15 degrees in the summer and you have 10 degrees in the winter, but the reservoirs in the Pentlands, they proper freeze. And this year it was a bit brutal because you had so much snow and so much ice and I couldn't actually swim. There was <laughs> at the one, at the one uh, reservoir, I think it was hollow. I had to go in in a spot where somebody else had broken the ice before because it was so thick. You really needed a sledgehammer, I think, to get in. Wow. And I didn't have one, so <laughs> I just went in the thin ice where somebody before me had broken a big hole. <laughs> People talk about lots of health benefits of uh, being yeah. submerged in cold water and things. You know, I'm not yeah. super... I mean, I look at those things and I think sometimes the evidence with with the health benefits isn't out there and the same thing with a lot of uh, self-medicating with wild foods I think um, and I'm a little bit hesitant to put too much into things when the evidence really isn't totally 
totally there, but I'm a huge believer of placebo effect. I love placebo effect. I think there's nothing wrong with it. You know, it, it just shows how amazing our body is and how, how amazing the power of faith is. So I think believing that there are amazing health benefits is half the battle, you know. <laughs> there will be amazing health benefits if you believe it. And I think that's really important too. And I can say from my own experience, there's a lot of mental health benefit in it. Just doing something a little bit outrageous, you know, going in a frozen over lake. It just adds adventure and and excitement to life, which is during lockdown in particular important. Yeah. Maybe the whole like yeah, foraging is like that as well. Like if someone's going out to look for some mushroom that they think is gonna or they think has some particular properties. I don't know, like a lot of the um birch uh like like birch polypore and stuff, you know, that's uh shaga. Yeah. Example, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People always looking for those, but maybe the actual act of looking for it is kind of yeah, even more beneficial than the the chemicals that are inside it. I could imagine. It's almost, you know, when you think of like a uh, Campellian um, psychology or uh, where you're going, where the hero goes out in a quest to find the boom that, that will change the world and save everyone. It's a bit like that, isn't it? You're trying to find this rare coveted species and just finding that special thing has some has some benefit. You mentioned that uh, my, my girlfriend showed me chanterelles and I remember that holiday, it was with her family. It was the same kind of like hero's journey thing. Like we went out and we found loads of chanterelles and we brought them back, you know, to the village to share, you know, with the community kind of thing. And it, like, I love that. <laughs> that is so perfect. <laughs> You feel so empowered when you do that, you know, when you bring when you bring a massive bag of food and just like plump out the table and you're like, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And coveted food. I mean, have you seen the price of chanterelles in the supermarket? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 That's cool. And I think after a while, when you go out foraging mushrooms, you know, for chanterelles and stuff a lot and your new environments, you really get an element of gambling addiction as well. It's so exciting because you never know what you're going to find. It's unpredictable. And sometimes you just hit the jackpot and find the big load of chanterelles or porcini or whatever it is. I guess this kind of can lead us on to the next question, which is um, about the the ethics of picking wild food. So I know that there's a lot of controversy constantly on the um, on the Edinburgh foraging page, for example. You know, if someone posts pictures of their big hoard of mushrooms, a lot of people are like, you're destroying the habitat. Yeah. Like, what the hell are you doing? And then a lot of people are like, well, there's no evidence that picking the mushrooms actually hurts the mycelium. And then, so I, I just kind of want to know what your, what your thoughts on, on that are. Yeah, I mean, that's that's something obviously I have to answer a lot to as a professional forager. And, you know, I think as humans, we really should be and have to think of ourselves as part of the environment. That is what we are. We are animals and we live off the environment and we're not some outside entity. We can't take ourselves out of the food chain. It's impossible we have to eat something so the alternative really is 
to either grow it yourself or to buy supermarket foods. And when you're buying supermarket foods, imagine the ecological impact that has, you know, the, the, the long food chains coming from who knows where, the plastic, the fertilizers, the pesticides, all that. So when you're buying supermarket food, you're not taking yourself out of the food chain somehow. I mean, that's a ridiculous um, idea that, that we somehow cease to be part of this. So I think when you're foraging, you're cutting down on all that. You know, you're walking there mostly, I'm assuming, and uh, you're gathering stuff on your feet. You're gathering what you need to eat. It's really rare, I think, for foragers to overforage, to harvest things they're not going to use because it's so much work. It's so much effort to harvest. So, um, so there is much less food waste, I think. And even if you have food waste and you're ending up putting it on the compost, these plants, you know, you're still in the same environment. These plants would have died there either way or these fungi. So, um, I think from that angle, you're doing so much less harm foraging than you do eating in another way. From a sort of aesthetic point of view, I suggest to people not to harvest more than they need, not to harvest more than they can use. There is always something repulsive, I think, about waste and wastefulness. So um, I think it's a fairly good uh, philosophy to live by, to just take what you need and not more. The more you know, you know, the more you are aware of uh, if something is incredibly bountiful anyways, like nettles, um, or if something is quite rare and should maybe be given a pass just um, to make sure it can proliferate and uh, grow more of. With a lot of people, if you find a big bounty of, of stuff, you do kind of want to pick lots of it and then preserving it becomes a, a bit of an issue yeah well, do you have any any tips for preserving oh yeah I think food preservation and foraging have to go hand in hand because it's hardly ever like supermarket shopping where you can just go out and get what you need for your meal and then go home you know it's it's either you found everything at once or you find nothing so preserving is super important I like to go sort of with the, with the old fashioned uh, techniques, not because I'm against freezing. <laughs> I mean, I think freezing is wonderful, but I never have freezer space. So uh, freezing kind of uh, doesn't um, uh, take a huge role in my preserving just because I don't have the space for it or the capacity for it. So uh, with, with mushrooms, I do a lot of drying because a lot of them dry well. Seaweeds, I all dry because they spoil quite quickly. Mushrooms do too. And, um, and drying them will preserve them perfectly. So mushroom seaweeds drying is really good. Uh, a lot of fruit I preserve in sugar, for example, uh, for making cordials or making jams or fruit leathers or things like that. Well, fruit leather is kind of a... What's that? What's, what's a fruit leather? A fruit leather. I, uh, if I have excess fruit, I puree it and cook it down a bit and then spread it on a silicone sheet. Usually I add a little bit of sugar just for texture, depending on the fruit. Sometimes it needs it to make it more tasty. Spread it on a, uh, usually a silicone sheet or baking paper and then let it dry. And you end up 
you know, with with a thin layer of dried concentrated fruit puree. And then I roll it up and give it to the kids like fruit roll-ups. It's, oh, right, it's really right. cool. Yeah. cool. Yeah, They all love it. It's good. So it's sort of a mixture between drying and, and adding sugar. Um, then, of course, salt is a good uh, preservative. Sometimes I take herbs and spices or mushrooms and grind them down with salt to, to use them later on. And uh, lacto-fermentation or alcohol fermentation, of course, are good methods as well. And fairly easy to do, you know, with, with lacto-fermentation, which is really good for green things in particular. Uh, I think all you have to watch is that your salt level is just right. And then the microorganisms, they're all around us anyways, uh, will come. If you create the environment, they will come. <laughs> and then you have the lacto-fermented greens to eat fresh and even enriched with more goodness uh, throughout the year. I tried to make some mead in the summer and it was literally just a case of you just leave the pot out and just let to all get the, the wild yeast yeah just the yeah. yeast just come in and just make it it's, it's pretty incredible yeah. yeah yeah and lots of times the the stuff you're harvesting like elderflower for example already has the yeasts on it so if you don't boil it you will introduce the yeasts with your flavoring right away and it's quite exciting because you don't know you know, what kind of yeasts they are, how far they can push the sugars, how far they can convert. So it's fun. It's exciting. It definitely makes a, a, a very idiosyncratic like drink, like it changes. Yes. It changes with time so much. Like it was, it was more like a syrup. It is. And then it's just like, I've, I still have bottles of it and occasionally I just have a bit and it's like every time it's different. <laughs> like, is it nice? Is your meat nice? Yeah, it is nice. It is. I had to add some supermarket sugar because mm -hmm. i didn't have quite enough raw honey and stuff um so that was a bit of a shame and it and it yeah it's not miss it's, it's not got quite like the nice let it sit though yeah. meat i think is one of those some of the some of the foraged wines or beers or whatever you call them really need some time to develop their flavors so mm. while they're maturing over the years it, they really, really, or over the month, really, really, really change. So mm. meat is said to not taste any good at all for the first two years and uh, oh, okay. only to start being acceptable after about five years. So leave your bottles wow. and try okay. again later. Okay. I don't know personally. I have some that I made, I think, three years ago. And the first year, it really was vile. It was not nice. And, right. But I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I have to say, it smells really good now. It's really, mm. it's really nice. Mm. We'll see. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, you actually have to wait. I mean, that's good. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. it's slow food. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you know, you have to be patient and stuff. It's, it's good lessons Absolutely. to Absolutely. That's yeah. what foraging is all about, patience. <laughs> um, so another question I wanted to ask is, um, do, you, do you think the popularity of foraging has increased recently? And if so, why? Yeah, I think lockdown has has really done something to foraging uh because i think last march you know during the first lockdown people had nothing to do for the first time ever except go out and then we had the nice weather and people did go out and i think if you're going out every day you're starting to notice the stuff around you you're starting to be curious about the stuff around you 
And I think maybe being knocked out of the normal grooves of, you know, commercial kind of living has also made people maybe come back a bit to what humans are made for, how we have evolved, which is foraging. You know, this is us. This is who we are supposed to be. So, yeah, I've seen especially a lot of young people be more interested. I see it in the courses that I'm getting a lot of young people. Oh. And uh, the cottage core aesthetic, I think, is also helping with that. Yes. What's that? <laughs> cottage core. I don't know. I think it's just a sort of, <clears throat> it's a young people thing. I wouldn't really know about it. But I think <laughs> it's <laughs> sort of this aesthetic of, of being very connected to nature and taking an interest and, uh, in nature. And carrying that into uh, all aspects of life, I think. Yeah, I guess me and Callum are, are kind of guilty of, of that. Maybe we're maybe we're a bit cottage core. I don't know. Yeah, that's us right there. I don't think there is guilt <laughs> yeah. in that. I think it's lovely. So for these for these people that are um, starting to forage. Um, mm what should what should they be looking out for at the moment um and in the coming weeks oh yeah that's a good question so we're still I, in my mind i sort of divide the the foraging year in edinburgh because we have year round foraging we have we have full on every every time of the year really right now we're still sort of in early spring and early spring isn't so super abundant species wise but there are some really really lovely ones so the wild garlics of course we have two sorts of wild garlic here the uh, native the bear garlic uh, allium ursinum and then we also have the few flowered leek allium paradoxum which was introduced i think in like 1846 uh, in an edinburgh garden it's our fault we spread <laughs> this and it's like a, a red listed invasive <laughs> species it's really <laughs> really troublesome spreading throughout all of the uk and we're the epicenter <laughs> so when you go out along any of the waterways there's loads and loads of it there um you can smell it it's an allium so it smells like an allium you can smell the garlic smell but it has much narrower leaves than the um bare garlic than the allium ursinum uh, I prefer it because I know it's invasive. <laughs> we need to eat it. <laughs> we need to eat our way out of this invasion. <laughs> and I think it has, I really love it in cooked dishes like soups and um, scones and quiches and stuff like that, because it has a slightly more leaky flavor, I think, than the than the Orsinum. I used uh, the bear garlic, the native one, more in pestos and things like that because it's a bit sharper and a bit more garlicky. Um, yeah, so, so it has narrower leaves and it's actually uh, easier, I think, to or safer maybe to identify. The, the allium ursinum you can mix up with um, lily of the valley leaves, which are quite toxic, and with uh, naked lady leaves, um, colchicum, which is deadly poisonous, really, really dangerous. I mean, it doesn't look that that similar. But people do mix it up and have mixed it up. And uh, so it's good to be aware of that. And then finally, people mix it quite often up with lords and ladies, uh, cuckoo pint, arum maculatum, which isn't toxic in the sense of killing off your cells, 
but it has oxalate crystals in it. So eating it is like eating fiberglass and it will burn your mouth. It will burn your lips. And if you get it in your throat, it will make your throat swell up. So people actually have died from it, from, <laughs> from not being able to breathe because their, you know, their mouth uh, and throat was so swollen. It doesn't, again, it doesn't look that super similar um, unless they're very, very young. But I think it's good, you know, for beginning foragers to have a look at the species other people have confused with and, uh, and be aware of it. I think uh, with uh, the Allium paradoxum, the invasive one, the only thing you can really mix it up with is bluebell leaves, which do look similar, but which aren't that toxic. <laughs> so <laughs> they're mildly toxic, but you're, <laughs> yes, <laughs> you're not going to die. So <laughs> that's, um, <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> uh, I think for me, the biggest uh, distinguishing feature always is the smell. If mm. it smells like garlic, if it's in the Allium family, it's edible. Mm. For us anyways, not for dogs, I guess. For the few flowered leek, do you uh, blend it down into kind of pulp or do you just use the leaves as they are? Whichever way I feel like it, <laughs> I mean, okay. there's lots, there's lots, it depends on the recipe or on what I'm doing. Uh, my kids prefer pureed soups to having the little bits. So uh, I, I quite often blend it down for soups, but for stir fries and stuff, I just chop them up and use them like spring onions or something. They're a lot, if you compare it to like shop-bought leeks, they're a lot softer and more tender and need a shorter cooking time. Mm. But there's other green stuff coming up now too. There's uh, the the hairy bittercress or wintercress. You've talked about mm -hmm. that before. You've tried that, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. That's and good. it's really it's really nice. I love that peppery kind of rucula punch of it. It's nice. Um, what else? Oh, I love those uh, the flowering currant. It's also not a native. It's from the uh, North American West Coast, California. But people love it in their gardens. And from there it has spread. So I find it in all the woods and it's blooming right now. And it has those kind of magenta, hot pink uh, flowers. Okay. And they smell so nice. It's like a cross of elderflower and um, blackcurrant. Mm. So you get a fruity, flowery flavor, which this time of year you don't get from much else yet. Mm. What's that one called again? Uh, Ribes sanguineum, flowering current or blood current. Mm -hmm. It's a really good one. Yeah, look for it. And um, not too many mushrooms are up right now, but we have the elf cups, scarlet elf cups, which are cute little red balls. Uh, not super tasty, but pretty. And the wood ears, jelly ears, which are everywhere and um, which really are year round forage. But because I don't find so many mushrooms yet, I pick those right now. And soon we'll start getting St. George's mushrooms and morals if you're lucky. Yeah. How do you use the jelly ears just out of interest? Um, <laughs> I think they're great in soups. They're really good in stir fries. The one thing you mustn't ever do with them is uh, saute them in oil <laughs> because they <laughs> yeah. explode like popcorn. Have you tried? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, it's super yeah. dangerous. And then you have hot oil, you know, yeah. squirting on a mushroom through the kitchen. And they really jump far and with some <laughs> with some I think it's because they're um because of the way they're structured, you know, they're they're like a bag. They're folded over on themselves. So there's a hollow space in the middle and then the steam builds up and explodes. Uh so Judith, where can we find out more about what you do? 
Uh, I have a website, which is Edinburgh Forage and Eat. And I'm also on Instagram as Edinburgh Forage and Eat and on Facebook. So, and my tickets are sold through Eventbrite. So I think any of those uh, locations, you can um, find my courses and details of the events coming up. And you're, you're doing these courses uh, mostly in Edinburgh? Right now, just within the Edinburgh city limits because of the travel restrictions. But soon I'll be roaming a little bit farther into East and West Lothian anyways. It's a great time of year to be foraging. Yeah, definitely. The weather is just like begging you to go outside. <laughs> it is, it is. That's what we're going to do right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been such a pleasure to uh, speak with you. Thanks so much for your mm, time. Thank you. I love being here. Thank you.